service. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The Rolling Stones, their place in London society in the mid-60s, and the circumstances leading up to and surrounding the arrests of both Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, are so complex that I needed two episodes to properly tell this story. If you're just getting hip to this now, I suggest you hit pause and go back to Disgraceland episode 60, or part one of the Rolling Stones' Swinging London story, where we discuss the band's prefab rivalry with the Fab Four. London's fast-changing culture, the arrest of pop star Donovan, the news of the world's axe to grind with the Stones, the influence of the Aristos, gangsters, and spies, one escaped and one in the ranks. In this episode, we get deeper into the band's bending of the law and social norms, as well as into the mold-breaking, great rock and roll music that the Rolling Stones created. Unlike the music I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Cockadoodle Blues MK1. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to Windy by the Association. And why would I play you that specific slice of easy breezy pop cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on July 1st, 1967. And that was the day the conservative London Times released the editorial entitled who breaks a butterfly on a wheel, effectively saving the careers of the embattled and likely soon to be imprisoned Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. On this episode, a jewel heist, a drug bust, a powerful ax to grind, Mick and Keith behind bars, Brian Jones off the rails, and easy breezy cheese. Ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Twenty-four years old, and one of the biggest pop stars on the planet, with the eyes of Her Majesty's entire kingdom trained on him. Mick Jagger sat in the back of a rickety police car racing through the streets of London, taking him to jail. He arrived, numb and in disbelief. How had it come to this? Jail? Or nothing? Pills, amphetamines, they were prescribed, legal. Was it because of Robert Fraser with his 24 jacks of heroin in his dainty Elizabethan box? The fallen angel of Eaton, slumming it with the Rolling Stones, showing just how far a society could slide into the disgraced clutch of rock and roll? Was it because of Marianne with the fur rug and nothing on under it? The well-behaved, beatific young lady turned lascivious nympho by the Rolling Stones? Or was it because of Brian Jones and his loose acid-smacked lips corrupting London's youth, turning them on to tuning out the establishment. Whatever the reason, 
Mick Jagger hardly felt like he had committed any crime befitting of this punishment. Three months in prison for possession of drugs, again, prescription drugs. Inside the walls of the prison, Mick was stripped and deloused and thrown into a solitary cell off the infirmary. He was permitted the visit of a girlfriend, the aforementioned quote-unquote lascivious nympho Marianne Faithful. Marianne was scared, but not as scared as Mick. Mick saw the writing on the wall. This was it. This was game, set, match. The squares had won. He was done. Keith was surely done as well. Brian had been done for over a year now. Charlie would have to go back to the trad jazz clubs. Who knew what Bill would do? Ian would probably end up driving a lorry. Andrew had already split for the States. Couldn't take the heat from the arrests. He wasn't even there. Coward. If Mick ever got out of this, he knew one thing. If the Rolling Stones were to continue, it would be without Andrew Lou Goldham. Alan Klein would take over the whole show. Get Mick some of that Sam Cooke juice. Marianne stood outside the cell. Mick was in regulation prison garb. It was two sizes too big. He looked so small and so scared. He was mumbling, semi-coherent. It was as if Marianne wasn't even there. Mick's rambling was incessant. It turned to anger, anger born of desperation. The past few years for Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones was one constant ascent. Up, up, and up. Then there were no real setbacks, and there was no plateauing of any sort. Since their inception, since the early packed crowds at the Marquee Club in 1962, to signing on with Andrew Oldham as their manager in 63, and then soon after with Decca, their first tour of the UK with Bo Diddley, Little Richard, and the Everly Brothers. How top was that? Mick could have died then and there and gone to his grave a success, in his own mind at least. What soon followed was beyond his schoolboy dreams. Chart success in the UK, number 12 with John and Paul's I Wanna Be Your Man, and all the way to number two with Buddy Holly's Not Fade Away. And then it was off to America, where they'd have to find a way to overcome the indifference and disdain of the American establishment. Without a hit, relying on their live chops and charisma to put a snarky Dean Martin in his place on national television. And then to Chess Studios, where Muddy Waters carried in their gear for them. Again, Mick could have died then and there. The old bluesman, Muddy, Wolf, they welcomed Mick and his bandmates with genuine kindness, real openness, not a shred of cynicism or contempt. In the Rolling Stones, they saw reverence, sincerity, authenticity, which was more than what James Brown saw. James saw a threat, a bunch of white boys from a strange little country profiting off of what he was working hard to dominate, black American R&B music. James took them to school at the filming of The Tammy Show, but the vanquishing from the stage wasn't without its value. Mick learned a lot from watching James on stage, how he moved, how he owned the audience. And later that year, when Ronnie Spector, Keith's American girlfriend, she was Ronnie Bennett at the time, Crazy Phil hadn't sealed the deal yet, Anyway, when Ronnie took them to see James Brown's legendary Apollo performance, Mick would learn even more how to be a frontman on and off stage. James was finding sidemen in the middle of a set with subtle hand gestures and backstage holding court like a regal prince, being catered to by his servantry, fussing over his hair, his outfit, even his nails. Mick Jagger took note. Then there was the number one hit in the UK, Little Red Rooster, the tour of Australia and New Zealand and another number one slot in the UK with Bobby Womack's The Last Time. And that went to number nine in the US. 
and they were moving up. And they could feel it. The world could feel it. The movement was constant. The Rolling Stones were coming. And then, Keith had the dream. The dream that changed everything. He dreamed up the riff after listening to too much Otis Redding, trying to play those horns on an acoustic guitar. Keith woke up from the dream and luckily had enough sense to put the riff down on tape, recorded it on a little Phillips tape recorder he kept on the nightstand in his hotel. In the morning, there it was. Mick had no problem writing lyrics to that one. Wrote them next to the pool at the hotel in Clearwater, Florida. And you can feel the sticky heat on those words. Satisfaction. It went to number one in the US and in the UK, of course. And then the last time, another one Keith and Mick wrote went to number one as well. And then the same top slots for Get Off of My Cloud and Paint It Black. The Rolling Stones couldn't miss. The Beatles, of course, were enjoying their own success at the time. And the Stones wore the black hat, sure, but that was just image for the kitty magazines. Anyone in the know knew better, knew that John, Paul, George, and Ringo were up to the same extracurricular activities the Stones were. Hell, even together with the Stones a lot of the time. George and Patty Boyd were at Redlands the night of the bust, and they just happened to have the good fortune of leaving before bloody hell busted up their trip. And this, it was all over now. Jail, the very likely end of the Rolling Stones. Mick couldn't handle it. He was breaking down behind the cell bars. Marianne on the other side broke character and went for tough love. Pull yourself together. Don't let the jackbooted thugs see you cry. Don't play the part of the prissy little pop star. Be a man. Mick would never forgive her for it. And he'd never forgive whoever it was who tipped off the cops. It had to be one of Keith's friends, not Robert Fraser and not Christopher Gibbs. They were too sophisticated. But Keith had other friends, more unsavory. Spanish Tony came to mind. He was always running some sort of scam, right there in the open, without you even knowing it. Mick remembered the story that Keith told him. Hey, are you guys proud dog owners like I am? You ever wonder why so many dogs are suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, you know Katherine Heigl from Knocked Up, she's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation. And she says that she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, Katherine feels that there's one place that we can all look to improve our dog's health, and that is their food. Many dog foods can actually create toxins that can be wrecking our dog's health. Okay, and this is true even for many of the premium dog food brands. However, by just adding a few special superfoods to our dog's diets, we can see huge transformations in their health. Katherine Heigl has already done this. She's made a video about it. You guys need to watch this video. It's a 20 minute video explaining step by step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. This worked amazingly for my dog, Dusty. I'm noticing more energy, healthier skin, uh, healthier coat. Dusty's coat looks fantastic. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash disgraceland and watch Catherine's video right now.
Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash Disgraceland. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership in an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Behind Bond Street, near Piccadilly, the Burlington Arcade, a covered European shopping gallery, one of the precursors to the modern-day shopping mall, Built by the Earl of Burlington, brother to the Duke of Devonshire, the Burlington Arcade retailed jewelry boutiques, fine watches, luxury perfumes, a mix of modern and traditional wares for both the old guard and discerning Chelsea set. Keith Richards sat outside behind the wheel of Spanish Tony's new Jaguar Mark 10, pimped out in two tones, top-of-the-line saloon car with a max speed of 120 miles per hour faster than Brian Jones's Rolls-Royce Silver Cloud, the one he could hardly see over the steering wheel of and for half the price. Keith was eager to wheel around town in Tony's new Jag, see what it was made of and how it would handle, and Tony had just the opportunity. Keith waited outside the arcade, casually dragging on his cigarette, and the sirens he heard were distant and dreamlike, more like the air raid sirens from the Second World War than anything twirling atop a copper's roof or from an alarm. But with every passing second, the sound grew louder, more intense, and finally, coupled with what most certainly was the sound of an alarm, a sharp, consistent rattle. Keith looked around the outside of the Jag, and there was no one around, a couple stragglers shopping about. And then, Keith looked to his right. Out of the driver's side window toward the arcade's entryway double doors, they burst open and through them came Spanish Tony in full sprint, sprinting from what Keith didn't know. Keith left his cigarette to dangle between his lips, reached down with his left hand to twist the ignition, grabbed the wheel with his right, reached down to the stick shift to put the car in gear, looked up to see Tony sliding across the hood of the car, and then bouncing into the passenger seat next to him with one word. Drive. Keith was already a step ahead of him. No idea what Tony had just gotten him into. He knew he didn't want to stick around to find out. Unbeknownst to Keith, 
Spanish Tony had just robbed the arcade's jewelry store. A hit and run, a real bang bang job. Tony had the new Jag, a clean car, and he needed a clean getaway driver. He knew Keith would never do it if he knew the score, so Tony set him up. Keith was pissed, but not entirely unsurprised. It wasn't the first time Spanish Tony would land him in piping hot water, and it wouldn't be the last. Tony had his complications, but he wasn't entirely bad. He helped Robert Fraser out with his debt to the Cray twins. Tony ran one of their casinos, and that was another plus for Keith. It opened up the Rolling Stones world to a wide array of sordid characters who, in addition to being as glamorous as rock stars, could also procure hard-to-find drugs, in particular, acid. Which is most certainly how David Schneiderman, the acid king, came into the picture. Through some Spanish Tony Robert Fraser Craig Casino Chelsea set Christopher Gibbs Aristo connection. And no one really knew. But here he was, fresh from the States, with his smarmy Cary Grant skin and white lightning LSD. It was better than the strawberry fields, better than the purple haze, supposedly fresh from Keezy's personal batch, but who knew if that was true? David had a way about him. Instantly, you get the vibe that at least half of what he said was utter bullshit. And he was as pretentious as they came, in that real hippy-dippy American West Coast kind of way. On that infamous day, February 11, 1967, before handing out the LSD to the group assembled at Redlands, Keith's new home in West Sussex, David actually said, This is the Tao of lysergic dithylamine, man. Let it speak to you. Let it tell you how to navigate the cosmos. What tripe. Even Mick snickered at that one and he was obsessed with the Tao. But regardless of the accompanying BS, the LSD that David the Acid King handed out was the stuff. The Stones, Keith and Mick, the Chanteuse, Marianne Faithful, the Etonians, Robert Fraser and Christopher Gibbs and fellow Aristo Nikki Kramer, the photographer Michael Cooper, and they tripped hard. And by the time dinner rolled around, Beatle George Harrison and his girlfriend Patty Boyd had turned up only to quickly split after the rest of the group made it back safely from their excursion through the nearby woods and then to the beach, back to Keith's Redlands home. Lavishly decorated by Christopher Gibbs, the home wrapped the tripping set up in its warm embrace. Cozy, they began to settle in to riding out the final hours of their trip. And then, a hard knock on the door. Was it really a knock? Or was it a collective oral hallucination? And there it was again, hard, intrusive, not going away. The group looked around at each other. No one spoke. Everyone had the same thought. Just be quiet and maybe it'll go away. And maybe whatever bad road was on the other side of the door would just roll itself up and wind itself away. But it didn't go away. It grew louder, more persistent. Keith took to it head on strolled over to one of his front windows, pulled back the heavy curtain and looked out upon the pending disruption. There, on his front lawn, at least a dozen, possibly more, dwarves, all wearing the same blue uniform, the same little shiny black shoes and the same tiny little SS helmets. Keith couldn't wait to meet them. He opened the door, shirtless in his skin-tight, pinstripe slacks, barefoot, brown rocks and a tumbler in his right hand welcoming them in with a wide stretch of his left arm. Gentlemen, wonderful attire. Am I expecting you? Anyway, come on in. It's a bit chilly out. The main dwarf tilted back his helmet head to look up at Keith. We have a search warrant. 
We'd like to read it to you. Keith would have none of it. Oh, that's very nice, but it's a bit cold outside. Come on in and read it to me over by the fireplace. Keith's hospitality was not met with kindness. In marched the stuffy uniformed dwarves. They began to quickly search the home, turning out ashtrays, opening up desk drawers, pulling books down, rare and valuable first editions procured by Robert Fraser, and casually throwing them to the ground. The sudden action sent Keith's head a wobble. He blinked his eyes and the dwarves had multiplied, completely overrun his home and the sounds they made, grunting like pigs at the trough, tearing through his belongings, frightening his guests. He heard other sounds, the wind of the alarm outside Spanish Tony's jag. One of the pig-faced dwarves marched Marianne down the stairs, clad in nothing but Keith's fur rug. Marianne had just showered when the intrusion came upon them. Keith watched, confused. He heard the sound of Brian's pissy little laugh, the little carnival clown he turned into, content with pissing his pants in the back of Keith's Bentley while he and Mick took the piss out of him for being such a sniveling little twat. Brian had it all, and he was blowing it. Keith heard the tumble from Grace, out-of-tune sitars, cracked marimbas, and bent mallets, failure, fear of failure. It was scarier than any jack-booted pig rummaging through his house at the moment. But fear wasn't Keith's game, it was Mick's. Keith heard Blue Lena roaring towards Stonehenge from the back seat with Princess Margaret, his butler at the wheel, Christopher Gibbs in his double-breasted suit up front spouting off about flying saucers and the latest rumors about David Litvinov. Keith heard the razor blade pierce through Litvinov's skin, just under the chin, the slight tear of the skin, the sound of Litvinov taking it like a man, stifling his screams, staring crazed heavies in the eye daring them to go all the fucking way with it if they were going to go on with it at all. Litvinov was hard, like Spanish Tony, like Keith, he could take it, and he'd live to tell about it. The dwarves were relentless. The chick dwarf made Marianne drop the rug, naked, and the pigs double took one take Marianne. There she stood, bare, paranoid, ravaged with fear, a nightmare of shame come to life, but nothing compared to what was about to come down on poor Marianne. It wasn't anything Keith hadn't seen before. But the sounds, these were new. The snorting of the pigs, the roaring engines, and then the horns, the honk of the air raid siren, bending itself into the sound of the Memphis horns, shaping his satisfaction riff. The way it was supposed to sound, thick, like the feeling in his head, like the rabbit fur on Marianne's back, like the multi-track guitars he had to cobble together to compensate for Brian's fuck-offery like the bullshit being spewed by the piggy dwarves, now fixed to separate the group. The Etonians, Robert Fraser and Christopher Gibbs, upper class, the pigs reserved whatever niceties they had for Groovy Bob and Gibbsy. Then the Stones, Mick and Keith, Marianne alone on the stairs, and the rest of the revelers off to the side with the servants, who the pigs barely acknowledged as being worthy of their disdain. They'd found pills, speed, wanted to know whose they were. Mick immediately and valiantly copped to them being his. And then there were the jacks of heroin, 24 of them in Robert Fraser's beautiful little antique box. But strangely, left alone throughout the entirety of the raid was David Schneiderman. He wasn't even searched. Neither was his highly suspect aluminum briefcase filled with LSD. So strange, no matter. The cops had what they wanted, a drug charge that would stick on a rolling stone. Possibly two, they'd gotten what they came for. The rest was now up to the courts. While they exited, 
with the contraband to bring back to police headquarters to test and then use later to charge Mick and possibly Keith with, and most certainly Robert Fraser with. Keith decided to play them off with a little tune. He found his way to the downstairs record player, quickly plopped down Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde, and dropped the needle on Rainy Day Women number 12 and 35. Everybody must get stoned. Keith's guests cut up, and the piggies were enraged upon exiting. They'd see who got the last laugh. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. The Redlands bust was in February 1967, but Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, and Robert Fraser would not be formally charged until May 10th of that year. On that day, Brian Jones was recuperating from a brief trip to Cannes at his Courtfield Road, South Kensington apartment with his friend, yet another bohemian aristo who'd come under the spell of the Rolling Stones, Stash Klausowski. The phone rang. Brian ignored it. It kept ringing. He ignored it still. It rang again. He picked up the receiver and quickly dropped it back on its handle. It then rained some more. He repeated the move. And then it rang again, and again, and again, until finally, Brian was forced to answer. Hello? The voice on the other line was clearly a journo, curt, excited, zero politeness. Have you been arrested? Excuse me, Brian said. How's it feel to be the third Rolling Stone busted for drugs? What? Brian asked and quickly hung up the phone. He told Stash about the exchange while the phone began to ring again. Immediately, Stash figured out what was going on. Quick, hide the drugs. They're on their way. The two sprung up and began searching for whatever drugs they could find to quickly dispose of. There weren't many, thankfully, but still, Stash and Brian were smart to be on the lookout for random supplies absentmindedly left behind by past partiers at Brian's flat. They found none. After a thorough search, securing the fact that the apartment was clean, the two collapsed into Brian's living room furniture and awaited what they suspected was a coming shit show. The doorbell rang. Stash peered through the peephole. It was Mohammed Johaj, Robert Fraser's servant who Stash had called after the press phone to inquire about coming over to help. Stash opened the door to let Muhammad in, and when he did, out of nowhere, a pack of strangers pushed their way into the flat behind Muhammad. The strangers quickly went to work. At first, Stash couldn't tell if they were cops or press or both, but it didn't take long to realize. It was indeed a mix of both. But how in the hell did the press get there so quickly? How did they know what was going on? I left a call and inquire about being busted for drugs before the police even showed up. And here, now, it was clear that the police had arrived after the press, fighting their way past them out front of Brian's flat to work their way in the front door to search for drugs that he had supposedly already been arrested for. Despite the clear and present skullduggery, Stash was convinced, as was Brian, that nothing would come of it as they knew there were no drugs in the house. But that confidence faded as soon as they saw the head knob himself. Police Sergeant Norman Pilcher. Old Nobby hadn't made it to the Redlands raid, but he made his presence felt during the raid of Brian Jones' apartment, making a big show of his search technique, sauntering around the apartment, blowing hard in that booming voice of his about the moral turpitude of pop stars. Stash caught the move. One of Pilcher's men pulled a hippie-looking wallet from under the mattress. In it. Grass. Bullshit. 
Stash knew there was no wallet full of grass under the mattress. He just checked it. And before he could bring his mouth to protest, Pilcher shouted his discovery from another part of the flat, a vial of cocaine. Again, bullshit, thought Stash. The drugs were planted, pure and simple, planted to sink the stones. It didn't matter. More drugs, found in the possession of another Rolling Stone. On the same day, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger were being formally charged. That's what the press was going to report. It was the next move from the establishment. The one meant to counter Mick Jagger's move where he brought a libel suit against the news of the world for the libelous and incorrect account in their drugs and rock stars expose from a couple months earlier, accusing Mick of admitting to taking LSD, when in reality, it was actually Brian Jones. Raiding and arresting Brian Jones was the corrupt news of the world working in tandem with Norman Pilcher's police to strike back, to prove, despite Mick Jagger's libel suit, that it didn't matter what Mick Jagger said with his lawsuits or what his and Keith Richards' lawyers said in court in their defense. This new bust of Brian Jones would prove it, that the Rolling Stones were dangerous drug addicts whose influence would corrupt London's youth and completely disrupt the established social order. After the bus, Brian was back home. His phone rang, and this time he picked it up on the first ring. It was Beatle Paul McCartney offering to help with Brian's legal bills, imploring Brian, who he correctly suspected was in a depressive and defeatist state, to fight these corrupt charges. Brian was agreeable if not inspired, clearly down. Paul invited him around the studio to sit in on a session the Beatles were having and to play guitar. Brian showed up later at Abbey Road Studios, but not with his guitar, with an alto sax. And during the recording of John Lennon's highly abstract, you know my name, look up my number, Brian, once again showing his prowess as an inspired multi-instrumentalist, blew an impressive sax solo to wrap the tune at the 351 mark. The track would show up three years later in 1970 as the B-side to the single Let It Be. By that time, Brian Jones would be long gone. Later that month, at the end of June 1967, Mick Jagger, Robert Fraser, and Keith Richards stood trial for drug possession. On day one, it took the court five minutes to convict both Mick and Groovy Bob, and they were sent to Lou's prison to await sentencing. Mick heard the snickering of the guards, and then came their lewd inquiries. How did it taste? The Mars bar? the one the coppers caught him eating out of Marianne Faithful's vagina at Redlands on the day of the bust. Mick was beyond disgusted. The rumor was sick and totally false and cooked up by one of the raiding cops and passed on to the press to run with. And there was a Mars bar on the scene, yes. And yes, Marianne was wearing nothing but a rug, but how those two facts led to the rumor about the Mars bar should have been beyond anyone's wildest imagination. Beyond being ridiculous, it was totally unfair to Marianne Faithful. She was getting it coming and going, slut-shamed publicly by the press and cast as an unwitting innocent victim by the prosecution to make the case that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards had corrupted her, proof of the disruptive, morally bankrupt behavior of the Rolling Stones. On the second day of the trial, 
Keith Richards is day in court with Mick sweating it out behind bars and Marianne sweating it out on the outside with the full heat of the national press coming down on her. The judge tried provoking Keith, pointing out that surely someone who would allow cannabis to be smoked in his home, to allow a young innocent woman to come under the influence of drugs in his home, and to then be defiled by disreputable men, drug addicts, the lot of them men, surely someone who would do this was nothing more than quote unquote filth or scum and suggested that people like this shouldn't be allowed to walk free. The prosecutor, thinking he had Keith on the ropes, went in for the kill, asking, Mr. Richards, would you agree that in the ordinary course of events, you would expect a young woman to be embarrassed if she had nothing on in front of several men? Keith, stone-faced, not at all. We are not old men and we are not worried about petty morals. She had been upstairs and bathed. The prosecutor, did it come as a great surprise to you that she was prepared to go back downstairs, still only wearing a rug in front of 10 police officers? Keith, I thought the rug was big enough to cover three women. The prosecutor, I wasn't talking about the impropriety, but embarrassment. Keith took a moment, thought about the question, let the tension in the room naturally build before answering and then deadpanned. She doesn't embarrass easily, nor do I. The exchange, once reported, instantly cemented Keith Richards' reputation as we know it today. That tell it like it is can't give a fuck rock and roll pirate swooping into action to lend his toughness, his attitude, his badassery to whatever the situation demands. The move made the press and the public consider Keith Richards differently. He wasn't the third chair in the band, behind Brian Jones, the band's founder, and Mick Jagger, the band's frontman. He was his own man, a rebel's rebel, and for putting his neck on the line, on the court record, for sticking up for his singer's girlfriend in public at the expense of his own freedom and for in effect telling the establishment to go fuck themselves, he was elevated to instant folk hero status. The judge, however, was not impressed. He gave Keith a one-year sentence for his smart mouth, the maximum allowed for the relatively minor drug charge of allowing others to partake in illicit drugs in his home. Hell, Robert Frazier had heroin on him, and he only received a three-month sentence along with Mick. Brian would get nine months suspended sentence and forced drug rehabilitation. But just as the bust made Keith Richards, it broke Brian Jones. His days were numbered, both as a Rolling Stone and as a living, breathing, functioning member of society. He would continue his slide into drug abuse and paranoia and be arrested again a year later unceremoniously kicked out of the band by Mick and Keith a year after that in June of 1969, and less than a month later would drown to death somewhat mysteriously in his swimming pool on July 3rd, 1969. Keith stood in the yard at Wormwood Scrubs staring at the prison wall, visions of George Blake and his great escape. One of the guards nudged him on the shoulder and informed him that his one day in prison would be his last. His lawyer had secured his release pending appeal. Keith's prison mates quickly went to work, penning letters swiftly to their loved ones and handing them off to Keith to deliver them as soon as he could on the outside. Keith stuffed his pockets and delivered every last letter. Mick Jagger was released that day as well. Robert Fraser wasn't so lucky. He'd serve his time. Ironically, upon Mick and Keith's release, it was the bastion of conservative UK press the London Times, that ran an editorial pointing out the unjust and extremely harsh sentencing handed out to Mick and Keith, 
claiming correctly that had they been regular citizens and not pop stars, that the establishment deemed disruptive to society, an establishment with a clear vendetta against the duo, that their sentences wouldn't have been nearly as extreme. The editorial in The Times went a long way in swaying public opinion in favor of Mick and Keith, and on appeal, their two prison sentences were quashed. As it turned out, the Redlands bust was the result of Keith's chauffeur tipping off the news of the world, who was clearly in cahoots with the police, tipping them off to make the raid. And the coppers were one step ahead, having already ensconced their man David Schneiderman, the acid king, King Narc into the good graces of the Rolling Stones and the rest of the Aristo Chelsea set, who had fallen under the dangerous sway of the lower class rockers. But when it came time to bust Brian a few months later, when the press showed up at Brian's place to cover a drug bust that hadn't even taken place yet, what was supposed to be the final nail in the Rolling Stones coffin turned out to be clear proof that the establishment was colluding to imprison the pop stars. How disgraceful. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod. And on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rock a roll. He's a bad, bad man.